In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 37 of Paw and Order. And I'm Camille Labchuk, your co-host, back today with my co-host, Peter Sankoff, after we took one episode off. Using the magic of the interwebs, the interwebs of the internet, of the, <laughs> using the, it's like we should start over, using the online magic, Camille, to bring us together from two separate continents. I am half a world away in Europe, and yet here we are over the magic of the internet doing Pawn Order, and I couldn't be happier. It's an amazing thing, and it's good to be back together, and I'm actually coming to you folks from somewhere a little farther away from home as well. Actually, not really that far away from home, because it's where I grew up. It's Prince Edward Island, here for uh, <clears throat> a couple of meetings this week, and uh, even snuck in a little bit of beach time. How dare you, Camille? How dare you take <laughs> any beach time at all? I know, I know. What a shameful thing to do in the summer, huh? I'm just very appreciative of all the great beaches that this country has to offer. Like, there really are just so many amazing Canadian beaches, and I would like to experience them all. But PEI has some of the nicest ones, and I have to say the vegan options were not so strong when I was growing up. I was vegetarian when I grew up and didn't really eat out a lot. I just mostly ate at home with my family. But, um, you know, coming back in recent years hasn't been as impressive for vegan options, but that is changing. There was a Beyond Burger being sold and a Beyond Sausage available on this place called the Cavendish Boardwalk yesterday, which is like this huge tourist trap that lots of families go to in the summer. And there, I don't think there's ever been a vegan option on that entire boardwalk, uh, but now there is. So again, times are changing. Good for you, Camille. And by the way, just to go back to that subject of beaches, I look forward to welcoming you. We can, I look forward to sampling the beaches in the Edmonton area with you. I mean, it's just one after another, Camille, of beautiful sand. No, wait, that's somewhere else, comparatively. Yeah. <laughs> we, we literally, we do not do well. We had a beach, you know, Edmontonians are so desperate for beaches that I swear to God, this is a real story you may have heard of in the news, that there was like this river project on the um, on the uh, North Saskatchewan River where they were doing, um, building a, a new bridge. You may have seen it the last time you were there. They, they just completed a new bridge over the, over the river in Edmonton. And when they did that, they had to move a lot of, obviously, landfill out of the way. And they actually altered the current. And what happened was it sort of set up, I kid you not, what was then called Accidental Beach, where ah! it actually, like, because the way the river had been diverted, a beach emerged, and, like, Edmontonians were, like, all over themselves, like, oh, my God, there's a beach on the river. So, essentially, this place was, like, literally flocked for months because there was, like, a beach. So, it was very exciting. So, oh, no, unfortunately, amazing. since we... Since we live, I live in the interior and I do not live on one of the Great Lakes. I am uh, unfortunately beachless. And the weird thing is I'm no better off here in Europe. I'm, I'm in Germany and I'm sort of in the middle of the country, which is lovely in its own right. But I have yet to get anywhere near a beach. But that may change this weekend. Although I don't know I'll be on the beach, but I think I'm going to be on the ocean. 
Where are I you should, going? I should know my geography. I am uh, tomorrow. I am flying for a short two-day holiday with my wife. We are going to Riga in Latvia, which I believe is wow. on the water. Um, my research of my impending tourist destination is a little slimmer than it probably should be, but we are going to Riga and we are going to be on the water. So that'll be kind of like a beach. It'll certainly be a beautiful old European capital. So I'm excited about that. Well, I look forward to seeing your photos and obviously hearing about the vegan food options. But yeah, I agree. A vacation just isn't really a vacation without some kind of access to water. So I'm glad you're going to well, at least true. see so the I, ocean. I know we're I know we're on the water. The, 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 it's, you know, it's been an interesting time um, here in Europe. The weather has not been all that I would have hoped it would be. They, they had this, you probably, anybody who's been following the news, there was this massive heat wave through Europe um, in, uh, in June, and it literally ended the day we arrived here. So we didn't uh. have to worry about the heat wave. We've had instead a cold sort of rainy wave that has lasted for about two weeks. So it hasn't been uh, the most overwhelmingly beautiful weather here in Germany. But um, um, it's always interesting to come to Europe because for, from a vegan standpoint, mainly because it's essentially just a completely different world insofar as food is concerned. And what I mean by that is not that it's better, because I, I actually, I'm not convinced it's better, but it's different. So essentially all the varietals and brands are different. Like for example, let me give some shout outs to, 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 to vegan Europe. If you haven't been to vegan Europe, like one of the biggest sins, and I think it's, I think Camille, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. I am convinced it has something to do with the dairy lobby actually, because one of the biggest producers in Europe is Alpro. You know, Alpro, the, it's yeah, a big, I love sure Alpro. It's a, it's a huge, yeah. Well, where do you get it in Canada? Like you can't. You can't. Like Alpro. No, they make soy milk, almond get... milk, cashew milk, coconut milk, like all these okay. non-dairy alternatives. Most importantly, Camille, I've discovered the new love of my life. It's Alpro Vanilla <sighs> Skier. It's like the Icelandic Greek yogurt. And it's just what? like, it's it's literally one of the best things I've ever eaten. It's fantastic. And it's like, you can't get it in Canada. So when we come here, we get all those great Alpro yogurts. We get vegan Magnums. We've been getting a lot of those, although you can get those in Canada now too. And just, um, oh, and you know what I got, Camille? It's so funny. So, so Beyond Burgers are really hard to get here, but we can get Impossible Burgers. So I've gotten like a oh. whole slew of Impossible Burgers. So now I'm going to do a little, you know, trying them out and see how they compare. Oh, fascinating. The global marketplace for vegan yeah. food is distinct it is, depending it is where you weird. are. It's so, cool. So, and, and Germany is such a big, you know, it's such a big player in that, that it's like when you go to the German supermarkets, it's just you never know what you're going to turn up. So it's like, it's literally, it's always sort of an adventure to go shopping, but always good to see lots of stuff and great new restaurants and things like that. And I don't think I've hit a restaurant that, you know, has been so amazing that I would, um, you know, feel the need to scream about it on this podcast. But uh, that's simply because I haven't really been traveling. Um, I'm really staying out in the country with my wife and her family. So um, we did go into Hamburg for a few days, which was amazing. Um, but uh, other than that, it's been pretty much staying out in the country. But we'll see. Next week, I'm in Riga, and then I'm in London. So on the next episode of Paw and Order, I can talk about what's gone on there. Oh, I'm sure you're going to have some good London updates because that city is just like top of the game for vegan food these days. Always has been, always has been. Good. So there's yeah. been a lot going on since I've left. And I... I I really wanted to um, weigh in on some of these things, and 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 I'm curious because I, I think I have I have 
some different takes because I, I did listen to last week's episode between uh, um, um, you and uh, our producer, Shannon Milling, who is, you know, listening to this carefully and listening to the sound quality in which uh, I am producing this podcast. <laughs> and I heard you guys talk <laughs> about the Calgary Stampede and the news in the Calgary Stampede, I believe, has only worsened since the last time you did this podcast. You know? Oh my gosh, has it ever? So yeah, we, we did an entire episode on Stampede and rodeo events and more generally last week, last episode. And that came out before the Stampede actually began. It was just on the cusp, the eve of the Stampede's um, beginning. Sadly, in the two weeks since, and uh, we've seen just horrific carnage at the Stampede this year, it's actually the deadliest year at the Calgary Stampede since 2010. Six horses have died in the chuck wagon races. And, uh, you know, obviously this is it's something where every single year when the Stampede starts, we all wait for bated breath to see when the first fatality is going to happen. It's not a matter of if, typically, it's a matter of when. I think there's only been one fatality-free year at the Stampede in recent memory. But this year was particularly bad. So six horses died in the chuck wagon races. And uh, we've been calling for action, political action at the level of the, the Calgary City Council to stop these events, um, charges against the stampede, or, or at least an investigation into what went wrong and, and what continues to happen. And there's been a lot of media discussion about it. Yeah, and and. And I, I really wanted to bring this up again. I know we talked, or you guys talked about Calgary Stampede um, last uh, episode. And, and frankly, if you go back a year ago, um, you can find the episode that I did with guest host Sophie Gaillard, in which we weighed into the Calgary Stampede as well. And we talked about it. And I, I want to talk about this in a few of the legal aspects, because I I still believe that people are of the view and look at this conduct and scream out, uh, as do our many tweets on animal justice, that this is cruel, that this is illegal, that investigations need to take place, and that prosecutions need to take place. Now, let me just be clear. Do I think it's cruel? Absolutely. Should this happen anymore? Absolutely not. Is it illegal? I, I, I think that's a much more difficult call to make. And, and the reason that I want to spend some time talking about this is because I think it's important to explain to people how the law permits this sort of stuff to happen. And, and, and by the way, I know it's legal because it goes on every year and no one is ever charged. <laughs> well, that's your metric for what's legal, huh? Is that no one ever gets charged? No, that's just my starting point. I was I was leaving an opening in case you wanted to comment, but if you want, I can jump right in to explain where I think the law goes wrong in this area and why I think it's actually a much harder case to make that this sort of this sort of racing when it's performed in the way that it is designed to be performed is cruel even when it amounts in fatalities. And the reason for that has nothing to do with the nature of the activity. It has to do with the way in which we define what the word cruel actually means. Go on, Peter, go on. Oh, go on and say more, shall I? Look, my uh, one of the things that I've been trying to research on for years and I've been trying to look at is the question of how the criminal law allocates risk. And the problem is that from what I understand of the way animal cruelty law is measured, 
it does a terrible job of apportioning risk. When we talk about risk towards humans, we understand instinctively that the higher the level of risk, the more likely it is that the activity is illegal. But that is not the way animal cruelty law works because animal cruelty law does not work on a standard form of criminal negligence. It works on a form of balancing the necessary nature of the suffering. And unfortunately, the term necessary is framed within the scope of human privilege. So as long as we believe that chuckwagon races have some merit, the difficulty of allocating when they are outside the line of acceptable risk is very difficult to do because the truth of the matter is the risk is essentially an essential part of the activity. And as long as it's an essential part of the activity, it's very difficult to say that it's unnecessary. And that's the problem. So long as we sanction all activities and say they're legitimate, so long as they are done within a reasonable framework, well, the reasonableness of that framework doesn't take into account the amount of risk that is incumbent upon the animals. It just considers whether or not we deem as humans that the act is legitimate. And to me, that is a very deliberate flaw that exists in the cruelty suffering paradigm. We're allowed to create a situation in which animals can be put at great risk. And then we can say when that risk eventuates, well, that's okay, because that was a necessary part of the suffering to enjoy this particular entertainment. Now, there are numerous ways you could attack what I'm saying. And of course, you know, I've spent most of my career trying to attack that. One of the many ways in which you could do that is you could say, well, we shouldn't be allowed to deem legitimate any particular activity we like. We should have to weigh the, the, the proportionality of that particular activity. But from my understanding of the animal cruelty test, it generally doesn't do that. And because it doesn't do that, you can continue to have police officers, Calgary Humane Societies, and Calgary Stampede organizers say, sure, what happened was a tragedy. Was it cruel? Absolutely not. Well, I guess it won't surprise listeners if you've listened to the last episode to know that I take a bit of a different opinion on it. I think that when you consider what's necessary in the context of criminal law, and, and the criminal law does criminalize unnecessary suffering, distress, or injury, uh, sorry, pain, suffering, or injury, like my view is that there is just no case that you can make anymore that this activity is in any way necessary because entertainment is not a necessary um, aim. It's not a necessary human purpose. Then we look at the provincial laws. The provincial laws say that you can't unreasonably... Well, but to stop you there, Camille, since we can have some good debate on this, because this is great. What you're saying is true, so long as you actually have a court that's willing to measure or assess the legitimacy of the particular experience. And when you find me that court, you let me know, because that has never happened. That is, It is not once that a court has been willing to say, okay, we're going to decide that this particular animal use is more legitimate than the other particular animal use. So again, I don't disagree with you as a matter of principle we should our test our 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 view of what constitutes animal cruelty law should evolve in a way so that we can begin to assess different types of legitimacy but i haven't seen that happen yet well this is what frustrates me about the entire situation involving the stampede and rodeo events but animal cruelty issues more generally is that charges are never brought we never get to evaluate these things and argue them out in court because law enforcement is so hesitant to bring charges that they don't believe are an automatic 
like slam dunk. Uh, the beauty of our system is that we have a common law system and the law can evolve to respond to social norms and people's changing attitudes. It does that in a myriad of ways. But when we look at animal cruelty prosecutions, uh, you know, I, I can't think of too many situations at all where an industrial use of animals, so a profit-driven use of animals, has been brought to court and evaluated by a court because typically the authorities just don't want to get into that. So we haven't had a cruelty prosecution against a rodeo in Canada since 1950, to my knowledge. And uh, you can bet that people's attitudes have changed drastically in that time, yet law enforcement has still failed to bring these cases forward for new adjudication to, to test out whether people's attitudes result in a shift in law. I'll agree with you to an extent. I agree and disagree. I mean, I agree with you. You're right. I do think the failure of law enforcement to bring these charges is problematic. And as you know, from, you know, many discussions we've had, I'd like nothing more than some test cases. But I, I am not convinced this is as clear a win um, even with shifting attitudes over time. And again, the reason is, as, as I think you know, Camille, the, the test right now, the legal test for, 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 for cruelty against animals is, is very strongly weighted in favor of the user. It just is. And even though attitudes have changed, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I am, it, it is, let's just say again, it is the cases in which a court in any jurisdiction in the world, let alone Canada, has been willing to come out and say that an accepted practice, however old or however dated or however barbaric we may think it to be, we are going to say that the practice itself, because of the risks it imposes, needs to be stopped. Because effectively, it's not, I mean, Camille, correct me if I'm wrong. Let's just take this back a step. Your objection is not to the six deaths in chuck wagon racing. Am I correct in saying that your objection is that the that that the chuck wagon racing goes on at all? Isn't that isn't that the I essence? I mean, I of object to rodeo events. I object to rodeo events generally because they do involve inherently inflicting fear, pain, suffering, and often death, and certainly the risk of injury on animals. Um, but I would, but I don't think that. Uh, sorry, the, the the general problem I have with with cruelty uh, in rodeos is related to the call to prosecute when deaths occur in chuck wagon races, because those deaths are foreseeable, they're inflicted for a trivial purpose. And in my view, they still constitute cruelty. Well, but that makes my point, because if they're foreseeable, then your problem is with chuck wagon racing per se. The fact that six deaths took place this year is sort of neither here nor there. It, well, I mean, I, again, I, I'm going to sound callous when I say that, and that's not, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just I'm trying to assess the, 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 the legal aspects of the way we look at this particular problem. The fact that six deaths occurred to me would be an aggravating feature in sentencing. The question really is, is the actual chuck ragging racing in and of itself cruel? Because if it is, the reason that it's cruel is because of the risks that it places on the animal. You don't like the activity because it causes a certain degree of fear and suffering and because it's incredibly risky. I don't like it for the same way. And, and frankly, I don't want you to think that I'm sitting here saying this should be legal because that's not what I'm saying at all. The problem I think we have is we're actually a couple of conceptual steps away from transforming our understanding of what cruelty is. So we can get to the point where, well, the truth is every time you do this chuck wagon racing, it's cruel. And the reason it's cruel is because of the level of risk it places on the animals. 
I'm going to tell you, between you and I, Camille, there's virtually no case in Canada that looks at level of risk in that particular way. In fact, it's quite the contrary. We accept risk all the time. The question is, are we managing the risk correctly? And in animal cases, the leeway in which animal producers are given to actually manage risk is massive. You know and I know if we just take this outside of the sphere of entertainment and move it into transport, if we move it into other areas of slaughter, for example, you can read through every um, animal welfare code or animal law there is and all of them talk about levels of risk they all talk about you know we're not going to intervene unless five percent of the chickens end up frozen i mean five percent of the chickens end up frozen at the transport facility is a massive number of chickens but that is all within the acceptable level of risk and and to me it is this question of risk and the way in which we assess risk within the cruelty paradigm that is it absolutely has to be addressed differently if we're going to move forward because frankly I'm not saying we're not going to get rid of chuck wagon racing I, I think we could get rid of chuck wagon racing more effectively just by continuing to press the Calgary's stampede to withdraw chuck wagon racing because it's bad publicity for them but as a legal matter I actually think it's more challenging to get rid of chuck wagon racing than uh, you might think or others might think well maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll have an opportunity to test this out in court Peter you never know what might be coming down the pipes you never know <laughs> we might be waiting a while. Uh, cases of this nature are really, really tough, especially because, as you point out, Camille, the, what, the point I do agree with you on quite strongly is that all the agencies involved with the responsibility or ability to prosecute seem to think that this kind of conduct is legal. They are operating within a power. They they would never express it in quite this way. Although if you look at some of the coverage on Chuck Wagon Racing this year, I did see it expressed this way. We Did you notice, Camille, they're always saying, we're always trying to manage the risk. Our, our goal is always to reduce the chances of anything going wrong. Although they fully accept that things going wrong is just part of the industry. Like that's the way it is. Well, this is what's so frustrating to me and, and why I believe that it uh, is an even stronger case for, for cruelty is that they have, I, I honestly believe that those stampede has legitimately tried everything it can to reduce the risk and to try to stop animals from dying in this way. Uh, but that's impossible to do. It's impossible to assure the safety of animals. And, and moreover, you know, we're just talking about the safety in terms of deaths or injury. Uh, it's impossible not to inflict distress and fear and pain on them as well. Uh, the very nature of this event, one in which animals are forced to perform, forced to run and pull these chuck wagons and forced to uh, interact in a way that risks them colliding with each other, risks them colliding with the sides of the arena. arena. There, there is just no way around that if this race is going to continue. So to me, that that shows even more clearly why this event just can't go on, is that there is no way to make it safe, because I believe the Stampede has tried to do so and keeps failing. Correct. And that is that is where we need to go in animal law. That is the frontier that hasn't been reached, Camille. I mean, the only time this frontier has ever been reached, to my knowledge, is in the foie gras case in Israel, where essentially they essentially got to the point where they said, look, we can't do it any differently. That's the way it is. And the Israeli Supreme Court said, well, too bad. Given the nature of this, it's not it's a luxury product. We're going to shut it down. But that is the only time I've ever seen that happen. Whenever we get to that rubber meets the road of that question of, okay, we can reduce it. We can reduce it. We're going to do everything we can to reduce the risk. We'll reduce, reduce, reduce. 
essentially the courts or the legislature or the code makers or whoever it is effectively gives in and says, well, it's only animals. So at the end of the day, reduction of risk and getting to this reasonable place is the best we can do. And what makes this paradigm so shocking is imagine that we were dealing with humans. Just imagine. Like that that that's 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 essentially in a nutshell the difference between criminal negligence and animal cruelty. With criminal negligence, we would never accept the risks. We'd never. As long as those risks were above what we believe they should be given the nature of the activity and they, you know, in a criminal sense they amount to a marked departure from the standard of care, then you're out. Like you can't do that activity anymore. It's just too risky. Period. You can't you can't have explosives in your backyard and have a blow up party because you just feel like it because you you like the idea. No, it's too risky. But with animals, that level of risk does does not get considered in the same way. It, it, it's just that the the nature of the cruelty test doesn't factor in that question of risk, and as a result. As much as we look at it and we continue to say, this is bad, this is wrong, this needs to change, we really need to change the test. And that's why animal law still has quite a ways to go. This is something I'm going to be talking about. Uh, this is actually going to be at the core of what I want to talk about at the Animal Law Conference in September, which I believe we're going to be talking a little bit more about later in the podcast. I believe we will be. Okay, well... Interesting discussion. Um, we'll just move on to one other quick news story on the topic of the stampede before we uh, leave this topic behind. But our good friend Jessica Scott Reed, as always, has written uh, the authoritative opinion piece on the topic of the stampede this year. It's in the Globe and Mail. We'll link to it in the show notes. And it's called Dear Calgary, It's Time for the Stampede to Evolve. And, uh, you know, she points out that she was warned against writing that piece because it can be an unpopular mm. position in Western Canada to take mm. any issue with stampede events. And I, I, I appreciate that. I'm, you know, I was born in Calgary. My family's still there. And uh, everyone attends the stampede. And I've been to the stampede before. There's nothing wrong with the stampede, per se. It's just the rodeo events. And I, I think the point that Jessica makes in the piece and the point I've been making in media interviews is that we could leave the rodeo events behind. The stampede could evolve and shift toward a more family-friendly, fun model. And I actually think that they would draw more people. They would draw bigger crowds because people who were turned off by animal cruelty wouldn't be turned off by the stampede anymore. I really liked her op-ed. It's not, uh, it, it, it's, it essentially carries what we were just talking about. It's essentially an idea of uh, one of the ways forward, as much as obviously this is a law podcast and we like to talk about the law, but uh, there's no question that the law uh, goes hand in hand with, with changing our moral views about these things. And what Jessica is essentially saying to people is there are just better ways to do this. And in fact, to a certain extent, Camille, they go hand in hand. I mean, I, I've, I, not everybody feels quite this way, but the truth of the matter is the failure and inability to regulate slash prosecute chuck wagon racing, racing, sorry, not wasting, um, is, is, in my opinion, one of the things that's going to lead to its demise. <laughs> everything you just pointed out. You can't regulate it. You can't make it fully safe. There's no way to do it in a way that makes any sense. So at the end of the day, in a sense, that inability to do it is what's likely to push some people as horses continue to die. Six horses this year. Six. It's just, it's just staggering. And I think that's what Jess is saying. It's like, look, it's time to move on. That's part of the part of the equation. Yeah, yeah. Six horses. I mean, Calgary basically just killed six horses for fun. It's appalling. Anyways, attitudes are changing. Like uh, my, my feeling from having done a ton of media interviews on this topic in the past week 
is I don't think I've seen this much media scrutiny on the Stampede Rodeo events as in the past. Uh, some years are, are bigger than others, and the deaths obviously have a lot to do with that. People cover stories more when there are deaths, but uh, there's a lot of international condemnation. Uh, we've been getting just an incredible volume of emails to the Animal Justice Count uh, account this year about stampede events, people just expressing their concerns. Mm. And my feeling is that there is something different happening this year and and that the mm. opposition to rodeo is, is only continuing to increase. So we'll see. I'm going I'm to go out on a limb. I never go out on a limb, Camille, but no. I, I'm going to go out on a limb. And I, Well, no, I, I'm just going to say, like, I, people ask, you know, I've been doing this a long time now. It's, it's over 20 years that I've been involved in animal law related issues, and especially in the early years, I was pessimistic, and I'm still pessimistic about certain types of change occurring in my lifetime, but a, a while ago, I mean, it was like it was about five years ago where I started seeing the swing, especially with respect to entertainment and zoos, and I was like, I was convinced, and until I learned about great African safari. I was I was convinced that elephants would be out of Canadian zoos one way or another within my lifetime. And I'm still reasonably convinced of that. If if Ontario ever gets the guts to go after a freaking private zoo in, in its own domain. But um, I, I feel that animals and entertainment were one of the easiest ways to, to one of the easiest things to fix. And especially the more dangerous the animal use. Um, you know, there was a story this week about a, a, a tiger killing its trainer in, in, in Italy. And I was like, you can see that that is just galvanizing in Europe to just like, we need to shut these things down as quickly as possible. They're just, they, they, every time we have bad coverage of this sort, it galvanizes the sort of the need for change. And I feel quite comfortable. I don't want to set a 10 year period and I'm pretty old Camille, but I, I feel comfortable saying the chuck wagon races will be gone within my lifetime. I am comfortable with that. I'm not saying all rodeo cause I don't think we're quite there yet, but I do think those chuck wagon races have become enough of a flashpoint that at some point they will be shut down in my lifetime. All right. Which is nice to well, know. Well, I'm going to keep that prediction in the back of my mind and we'll we'll revisit it at some point, I hope. I, I should say, though, Camille, that I plan to live to 137. So, okay. like, there's a lot of time still. <laughs> All right. We'll check in in 60 years, maybe. <laughs> we'll, check, we'll check in when I'm doing this without any teeth. Sorry, yes. that's ageist in its own right. But that's literally how I'm going to sound. That was like, you know, that's direct evidence. I'm going to sound like that. And I'll be doing the podcast with no teeth because my teeth are going to come out. Trust me. And uh, we'll talk about it then, Camille, in our old age I'm home. I'm really looking forward to this. <laughs> Yes. We'll have to have a new name for the podcast at that point. It won't be Paw in Order. It'll be like, uh, what's a retired dog? It's got to be something old. It's gotta, we got to get ages. We got to get something old in Okay, there. okay. Well, well, we'll maybe put a call out to, to we'll our listeners in, in a couple decades. We'll figure it out. All right. Another Alberta story in the news we want to talk about. Uh, a country. Oh, I sure did. Yeah, yeah. Well, a country club near Edmonton had a golf course, and apparently one of the employees just ran down a couple of Canada geese with a golf cart. So are you ready for my hot contrarian take on this one too, Camille? Oh God. <laughs> what? <laughs> Camille, Camille is not happy with me today. It's like, no, sink off. You, you came out in front of the chuck wagon races. Okay. Trust Thought me. You're my an animal lawyer, Peter. Yeah. My contrarian take on this one is not quite as, as, as crazy as it sounds, but I, I do want to say a couple of things. Cause look, I'm also a criminal defense lawyer. So the one thing I know being a criminal defense lawyer is that when you read witness accounts, you, you can't just 
always accept them 100%. And I promise you I'm going somewhere with this, Camille, because I'm not going to defend what the guy did with a golf cart going after geese, okay? But I, I do want it to be taken into consideration, and of course we can use it as a learning exercise about how animal law works. Because, I mean, what, what went on in this case, again, believe it or not, goes back to this whole idea of how I think we think about animal law and the cruelty that we commit against animals sometimes in the wrong way. Because what when you I read this article and I, I urge people to read it, I think there's gonna be a link to it in the show notes. And sort of the question, did you notice, Camille, that the question, the way it gets framed is, well, did he intentionally try to run over the, the geese? Like that's to yeah, me the sure. way this was sort of framed. Sure. The 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 sandpiper Country Club, Golf and Country Club posted about it on their Facebook page and they said this man was a loving family man and he would never right. harm anyone or anything maliciously is the word they right. used. So they're not denying that this occurred. They're just saying, oh, he didn't really mean it. Yeah. And, and I think and I think when I read the article, it gets framed in this whole thing. Well, you know, was he trying to run over the duck? So so I want to just sort of deconstruct this for a little bit, because I do think it's the reason I wanted to talk about the case, because honestly, it's you know, it's not it's not as big or an important a case as, say, the Calgary Stampede. But I think it does teach us a lot about how animal law works. So first of all, to commit the act of willful cruelty, it is true that he had to have known or been aware of the possibility that he could hit the geese. And Camille, do you remember back to your law school days, there's a case, I'm going to even give you the name of the case. The case is Higgins. It's a very famous animal law case because it's so ridiculous out of, out of um, Newfoundland. Does that case name ring a bell? Mm, no, it doesn't at all. It's about a guy who's chasing his cat with a broom. Does that ring any bell? No, not yet. It's, no. it's a good one. I, I, no. I teach it every year. Teach it every year. I'll give you the facts. And then I'm telling you, it's exactly the same as this case. So what happens in Higgins is this guy is like trying to, he's mad at his cat. You know, whatever. It doesn't doesn't really matter why. I don't even remember. He's, he's trying to discipline his cat. So he's doing the ridiculous act of chasing his cat by swinging a broom wildly at it. Okay. So in the end, he hits the cat and the cat's literally, I think he shatters the cat's legs. So like there's no question of pain, suffering or injury. But the question is whether he's guilty of a crime and he's acquitted. And as much as it drives some of my students crazy and it's probably driving Camille crazy right now, I think the judgment is sound. And the reason I think the judgment is sound is because the judge, after hearing the testimony of the accused and, you know, applying the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, says that when he was swinging the cat, he was trying to to move the cat or do something. I, I can't remember the exact facts of the cat, but essentially what the judge found was the judge was not certain beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused was aware that he could strike the cat. You follow me? It might take a leap sure. of logic, might be kind of ridiculous, but we live in a system of subjective mens rea, which believes we punish people who knowingly do things wrong. That's the question here, too. On a very narrow level, the issue is, did he know he was going to hit any of the geese? Because I personally feel, applying the criminal law, that if he did not know that he was going to hit the geese, he shouldn't be convicted of willful cruelty. Now, it doesn't end there, because like... Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Well, no, I think that's right. But of course, that's not the point. Like that's that, the real issue, as far as I'm concerned, is how we conceptualize what wrongful treatment of animals actually is. Because frankly, I don't know about you, Camille, I don't really care if he was trying to hit the geese or not. 
Well, I mean, I do, because if he was trying to hit the geese, it's worse. But he shouldn't be exculpated because he was driving at a geese with a golf cart doing something ridiculous. Are you ready? We're going to bring it all back together, Camille. Risky towards the animals in which he was doing it. Like, it's that question of risk. And again, to me, the issue is not whether or not he was trying to hit the animals, as the country club actually says, because frankly, once again, I don't really care. I think he should be investigated because you don't drive a golf course, a golf cart in a risky way towards animals at high speed for the purpose of dispersing them. And to to do that, you need to reconceptualize again this question of what animal cruelty is. And my belief is going forward, animal cruelty more and more needs to be conceptualized as an idea about avoiding risky conduct towards animals, especially where that risk can transfer into death as it did in this particular case. So again, whether or not he was trying to kill them, neither here nor there, except as far as I'm concerned when it comes time to sentence him. The real issue is why the, fu- why the hell are you doing that anyway? That's the issue. Nice, nice catch there. Nice catch there. Yeah, I mean, the real issue is don't be an, a, a jerk, let's say. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> uh, this is, or don't be dangerous. This is, don't be dangerous. Like, just, yeah. you, sh- my God, shoo the geese away by, you know, running at them and saying, shoo, shoo, whatever. Like, hire someone to walk around the golf course and keep the geese away if you need to do that yeah i mean yeah. i'm not necessarily advocating that this man be convicted of criminal cruelty for this act maybe he should be maybe he should well maybe he should be that's that's an issue of evidence right that's an issue of whether sure. or not the the witnesses can testify that he was aiming for them or he was trying to kill them but i mean the, the larger point has to be that the the reason i wanted to tie these two stories together is if we're going to do anything in the next 10 years or 15 years of animal law we have really got to get people to understand and we've got to get judges to understand that risks towards animals need to be built in to the process. We need to understand that you can't just blow this off because, well, he wasn't trying. Could you imagine? I mean, again, Camille, this becomes so much easier to understand, just like the Calgary Stampede, if you change the geese towards children. Just change them to children. Okay? Yeah, easy. Okay, easy, right? I mean, okay. (laughs) You ready, Camille? Look how easy this plays out. Was he trying to hit the children? I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say, no, <laughs> you know? I mean, no, he wasn't trying to shoo the children off the course by driving a golf course at them. And then my next question is, do we care? And the answer should be no, not really. What he did was wrongful, whether or not he was trying to, to actually hit them. But with animals, we never do that. We never take that second step. As long as the intent is acceptable, Pretty much whatever results usually gets off the hook. And that's why I think this case is so instructive um, in sort of showing one of the, the real flaws with the way we treat animals in law today. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, very, very uh, lengthy. I know, but you've I was... really got your law prof on hat on today. <laughs> We're already 37 minutes into the podcast having discussed only three stories. So, but they were Let's good stories, on. Camille. They but needed thank you to for be that, told. Peter. They were good stories. Yes, they need to be told. They are good stories. Thanks for I, the I have I have nothing to say about the next story, so I'll let you go wild. <laughs> okay, I, I enjoy this story. So many of you may have heard that the um, the state of California is considering banning fur sales entirely within the state. Uh, some minor exemptions, I think, for animals trapped in the state, but for the most part, they're looking at just banning fur sales. San Francisco has done this. Berkeley has done this. Los Angeles, West Hollywood. Uh, there have already been huge precedents for it. 
New York is considering doing the same thing. So lots of activity right now, lots of activism at the grassroots level around uh, fur bans in California and New York. And of course, the fur industry is there fighting back because they know what kind of precedent this sets that some of the hottest trend-setting cities are moving in this direction. And you know, they're trying to get people out, trying to get people mobilized to go and oppose the fur uh, ban, but it seems like they're having a bit of trouble, Peter. They don't seem to be able to inspire this massive grassroots movement in support of keeping fur on shelves. So what they're doing in California is they're actually paying college students and high school students to show up and uh, state before committees that are studying this bill that they're very, very strongly opposed to banning fur. They can't find their own activists, so they're paying activists. And the story that we're going to link to in the show notes is just a great piece by The Intercept that details this. They got some documents and some information proving that uh, this is the case and they've revealed it for all. So I'm really enjoying this. I think it says kind of a lot about where we are as a society, that there's no mass uprising in support of keeping fur on store shelves. And uh, the industry has had to sink so low as trying to pay people to to inspire that um, that action. So cool story. Camille, this is another story that demonstrates perfectly how ri- no, nothing at all. It doesn't. Oh it doesn't God, do. don't go, don't go back to your risk analysis, please. I thought we were done with that. <laughs> it does. It doesn't have anything to do with that whatsoever. It's just okay, a cool good. story about you know the fur industry and how it's falling apart. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. Like enjoying, enjoying seeing this immensely. All right. Well, our next story is a little bit closer to home once again. We've spoken about this case before, but it's a lawsuit filed by the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition against the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, which is the regulator of animal transport in Canada. And if you've heard about the story before, you'll already know that uh, the CFIA is failing to enforce laws pertaining to horse transport, specifically horses being shipped for slaughter and human consumption in Japan and South Korea are shipped by air out of uh, Winnipeg, out of Edmonton, and perhaps one other location too. But at any rate, the, the the horses above a certain size are supposed to be segregated so that they don't injure each other and and so on. And the CFIA hasn't been doing this. So they're getting sued. And um, our friend Rebecca Breder, who's been on the podcast before and spoken about this case, is uh, is now fighting off an attempt by the CFIA to quash the case. So they're trying to get working, it thrown out working tirelessly on a few on points. This, as I understand, Camille. Working tirelessly. Yeah, she's, she's working she's away. She's been going very hard on this. Um, yeah, so wishing best of luck to Rebecca to um, you know to attempt to stop their attempt to throw this case out because it should be should be adjudicated. The CFI is trying to say that the issue is going to become moot pretty soon because the transport rules are changing uh, in another six months or so. Yeah, they're going to get worse and, uh, from what I understand. So, is that correct? Like as oh, I as much. I read the story, it sounded like they were going to get worse. So because they're going to change, I love when they do that, by the way, we're going to change them. So we know it takes you forever to get in here, but then we can just, as the regulator, change them anytime we want, which renders the issue moot, which means that you can't challenge the legitimacy of the regulations, which is a long drawn out process anyway. Like I hate those types of arguments. Oh, yeah, it's ridiculous. This needs to be adjudicated. Like the CFIA has to comply with the law. It shouldn't be acting like it doesn't. And whether the issue does become moot or not in the future, this this is ongoing. This is a current issue and it should be uh, heard in court. So I hope it is. 
Now, by the way, Camille, we have completely forgotten that there is a, a very, very minor animal justice uh, tie to this story because we've, we've completely forgotten to speak about it. But um, as Camille knows, but the, our listening audience doesn't, um, a couple of animal advocates in Edmonton were protesting uh, the sending of horses to slaughter and um, were, have been charged um, for, for placing a banner over... Um, a highway overpass that complained about the shipment of horses to slaughter. Um, and um, in, in, in about three weeks' time, I'm going to be defending them on that charge um, with the support of animal justice. So we're, we're very excited to, we have all sorts yeah. of various arguments to show why um, that particular charge is flawed. It doesn't tie directly into the substantive issue in this case, but we're certainly at animal justice um, strong believers in the right to protest on animal issues. So we were very happy to uh, act in support of these activists on this particular issue. Yeah, and I look forward to discussing the outcome of that case on a future episode. But yeah, as, as you point out, Peter, not only do we focus on animal law and the, the issues that actually affect animals directly, but we also believe it's essential that those who are opposed to animal cruelty are able to exercise their civil rights and liberties to speak up against it and make societal change in uh, ways that they think are appropriate. So yeah, glad that you're defending this case and glad we can support it and glad that the activists are there speaking up for animals in the first place. Exactly. I'm very excited to speak about it. Just in case you're wondering, I, I can't, I can't, I, it's always tough to speak too much about these things before you actually go into court because I can't, since I'm their lawyer, I can't state the facts as you might understand because I don't, not that I think that anyone from the prosecution office is necessarily listening, but I still can't make representations um, about that. I can, I, I've told you what the facts are and I can tell you we have some really cool legal defenses, uh, but uh, it'll have to wait until we're done, which I think is about two podcasts away. I'll be able to talk more about that case. Hmm. Okay. So stay tuned. Very exciting. All right. Well, that's it for our news section. And we actually have a pretty cool main topic today. I'm sitting down with Jody Lazar, Professor Jody Lazar of Dalhousie University, the Schulich School of Law. Look how I pronounced that correctly. Jody and I had a very interesting conversation about the Animal Law Conference, why we decided it was important for Canada to have one and what you can expect and uh, why you should register and join us. And and before we get into that, Camille, I want to just take a moment because uh, I haven't had a chance to do that. Uh, um, I wasn't here last episode. So it seems like a good point just before going into our main topic to remind everybody about our amazing Patreon page and to thank some of our newest patrons because I, I was not here last week and I heard we got some new patrons and I'm very excited about it. In fact, Camille, as you know, few things get me more excited than new patrons. It's wonderful to see people supporting. So our Patreon page, for those of you who don't know, it's a way that you can donate on a monthly basis to support the podcast and help us make even better content for you and pay for an editor for the podcast and, and some research support. So we've got a goal of reaching $200 per month. We are now at $136 per month, Peter, thanks to our two new patrons, Caitlin and Neil. Thanks, guys. Hooray. I love it. Not, I, I honestly, I check it. I check it a lot. Yeah. I check it yeah. every once in a while. Okay. Like every, cool. every couple of days, I'll go check the Patreon page just to see if we have new patrons. Because I, I really, I love it. I, 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 I find, um, you know, Camille, we love the podcast, but the podcast is tiring and it's, it's, it takes a lot of time and effort to put it together. And I'll tell you that every time I see a new Patreon, I get sort of 
inspired. Like I really want to do things for the people who, who think enough of us to actually put their hard earned money to supporting this podcast. And, you know, uh, you know, Camille, I'm, I'm here in Germany on vacation and, uh, between you, I, and the listeners, I'm not even feeling that well today, but God damn it. I saw those two new patrons and we were not going to let them down. Camille give you the strength and motivation you need to power through and put out a new episode <laughs> exactly well we do really love this podcast and we love everyone who's supporting it or just listening to us um all of you out there who are listening you're hugely grateful for the support so thank you to everyone who's supporting on patreon.com slash power and order if you want to check it out we've got uh, tiers as low as a dollar a month that you can sign up uh as and uh we, it really makes a huge difference um Another way you can support the podcast if you love Pawn Order is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And Caitlin, who we just mentioned, is a new patron, Patreon, uh, patron on Patreon, I think that's right, uh, actually left a review too. And I'm going to read it because it's just lovely. Caitlin says, great job, guys. I really trust the opinions and reporting on this podcast. I can listen to it without being in tears because you speak about difficult subjects in a calm and level-headed way. My go-to source to keep up to date with animal issues in Canada. Sending my thanks for all your hard work by becoming a patron. Uh, hoping lots of others join as well to keep these podcasts coming. Thank you, Caitlin. That means a lot. You missed you miss the last line, Camille. It says, congratulations, Camille, on finally pronouncing Shula correctly. Caitlin, way to go. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, seriously, if you want to leave us a review, we really appreciate it. We have, I think, like 96 five-star five star reviews right now, which is amazing. It's almost a near-perfect record. And it really does help others find the podcast. Uh, bumps us up in various algorithms and spreads the animal law word to more people. Absolutely. And we should also give a shout out while we're here. I actually have a, a, a very loose grinning goat story today, but we should give a shout out to our sponsor who has been with us for quite a while now. And we couldn't be more delighted with the grinning goat, which is Canada's online, uh, is it online vegan store? It's, uh, it's, well, I, online vegan clothing, uh, cosmetics, and all sorts of other goodies store. And we all love the Grinning Goat based in Calgary. Uh, you, they ship across the country, uh, all sorts of amazing products. And, and my little Grinning Goat story, Camille, is that um, when I was in Germany in December, I, uh, I had, you know, done a little too much shopping, so I had to do some very tough choices. And since it was the middle of winter, I decided to leave my beautiful boots that I had bought at the Grinning Goat because they weren't winter boots. So I decided to leave them here. And, um, you know, I'm back six months later and I'm telling you, I'm wearing my Grinning Goat boots like every day now. It's fantastic. I'm so happy to have them back. Wow. Wow. Well, those are great boots. <laughs> and they have lots of other great boots and great sandals, too, if you're looking for summer stuff. So check them out, grinninggoat.ca. And if you use the code PAW15 at checkout, you'll get 15% off and they ship across the country. All right. Now I'm sitting down with uh, Jody. So let's move into that interview. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. So for today's main segment, I'm very excited to have a special guest with us, Professor Jody Lazar of Dalhousie University's Schulich School of Law, who is co-organizing the Animal Law Conference with me this fall. Welcome, Jody. Thank you for having me. 
Well, it's a pleasure. So I'm glad we get to chat about this conference because you and I spend a good part of the week on the phone together sorting out the logistics of the conference. So it's something that we have lots to say about. But uh, I thought maybe we'd start by, I just wanted to ask you for the benefit of our listeners, uh, how long you've been a professor, how you got into animal law, what is your backstory? Uh, well, I've been a professor sort of on the tenure track at Dalhousie at the Schulich School of Law since uh, July 2017. Um, I've always had an interest in uh, issues uh, related to animals uh, and the law, although my interest in animal issues goes way back to uh, before I even thought about going to law school. Um, like most, I've always had a, an affinity toward animals. I grew up uh, with a dog and um, got involved uh, in my early 20s in volunteering at the SPCA. I worked at a vet clinic for a while. Before I went to law school, I uh, worked as a pet sitter and a dog walker for a small company in Montreal, which only amplified my uh, you know, interest in the subject, my love of animals. Um, before studying law, I did a graduate diploma in journalism at uh, Concordia in Montreal and uh, sort of used that as an opportunity to really do a deep dive anytime I had a, an assignment to uh, write a, an article or, or record a, a piece, I uh, tried to uh, focus on, um, on animals. Um, That's funny because I did the exact same thing in law school, like all my papers, no matter what the class, there was always an animal tie-in. Well, that's great, and I actually didn't think about it that much during animal uh, during law school, uh, where my interest in animal stuff sort of took a back seat. Um, that is until uh, until doing my master's in law at McGill, where I took uh, animals and the law with uh, Professor Wendy Adams, and there I uh, wrote a paper which ended up being my first. Um, my first uh, attempt at research and writing in animal law and published a piece on, um, on uh, municipal regulation of uh, animal control. Um, and that was uh, in the days after uh, a CBC investigation into the problem of animal control in Montreal. So I wrote a piece uh, comparing uh, different approaches to animal control. And uh, from there, my interest just continued to develop. And um, as luck would have it, when I took up my appointment at Dal um, as a tenure track uh, professor, um, the esteemed uh, Professor Von Black, who had been teaching at Dal for many years and had taught the introduced and taught the animal law course there for, uh, I'm thinking, close to a decade, he uh, unfortunately for the law school retired uh, in 2017, and um, I was lucky enough to be able to uh, attempt to fill Von's very big shoes and teach the animal law class, which I've been doing there since 2017, which is great. Oh, that's cool. And Dalhousie's always had a very strong animal law tradition, I think in large part because Vaughn has been there for so long and he's one of the original scholars working on animal law uh, in this country. So it's great that you're able to continue the tradition and hopefully we'll even keep taking it to the next level, especially with this conference that's being planned. So um, before we get into the conference, what other scholarship do you work on? Do you have side issues apart from animal law? Sure. Uh, my doctorate was on family law, so uh, I also teach family law and I've taught children, youth, and the law. Um, so my research there focuses on gender issues, uh, the financial consequences of, uh, of marriage breakdown, um, equality, that kind of thing. Um, and I also teach uh, constitutional law, which is, um, for those that don't know, sort of the backbone of our Canadian legal system, which is a pretty fun class to teach. And, uh, you know, there we deal with the Division of Powers and also the Charter and Section 35 of the Constitution and um, Aboriginal rights. 
Um, and I also teach uh, an intensive uh, introductory legal ethics class for uh, our first-year law students. And are you able to meld these other areas with animal law to some extent? Well, actually, I've just, um, I'm just putting the finishing touches on a paper um, that I don't want to say too much about uh, because it doesn't really have a home yet, but uh, it looks at the real intersections between family law and, uh, and animal law, um, specifically related to uh, what happens, sorry, who gets the dog really is the question um, upon family breakdown, which, uh, which my thinking is, has become a bigger and bigger issue in front of courts, one that um, courts struggle to deal with. Um, and I think a little while ago on the podcast, uh, about a year ago, you talked about a recent Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal case dealing with um, that question and the way that the court split. So my paper looks at those intersections and um, really uh, encourages courts to adopt uh, an approach similar to what they would in uh, adjudicating family law property disputes. Well, we are going to have to have you back on when that paper is published, I think, because that was actually one of our most popular episodes. People really loved that discussion of family law disputes because I think it's so relatable to so many people. People are in relationships. They have dogs. They have cats who they live with. And when those relationships dissolve, it's a clear and present question. So we'll have you back on. But why don't we talk a little bit about the Animal Law Conference this yes, fall that we're hosting that. together. So. So Jody, I understand that as sort of a newer professor at the Schulich School of Law, you were encouraged to host an event to build connections in the legal community and raise the profile of the school, and you started thinking about doing an animal law event. Yeah, so I'm very lucky to have been um, given an opportunity to uh, bring some kind of event to the law school, bringing people together um, in an interesting area of law. And uh, I had thought for a while about what to do um, and uh, just kept thinking more and more about the fact that we haven't really had this big conversation around animal law in Canada. There have been sort of small workshops and events here and there. And of course, there's groups like Animal Justice and others doing this good work. But uh, to my knowledge, we hadn't yet sat down as a national community to really bring together the issues, get to know each other and uh, really solidify the growth of animal law in Canada. So I approached Camille, who was very keen, and uh, basically the rest is history. We're about two months out now, and um, things are looking pretty uh, pretty firm, and uh, we're really excited about it. Yeah, we've got a great lineup, and it, the timing couldn't have been better, because Peter and I have been talking for years about how we need an animal law conference, but. It's just such a big thing to do, and without having support of somebody at an institution who's committed to, to doing it uh, together in collaboration, it's, it's a hard task. So it worked out really well for everyone, and as you point out, this, this is a conversation that's nationally long overdue. Uh, the last time there was any sort of significant animal law sort of event in Canada at the, at the national level, I, b I believe, was in 2009 in um, Montreal when um, some professors at... Oh my gosh, is it UCAM or UCAM. UCAM got together and put on event, an event, which I attended right before I started law school, and it was great, but uh, 10 years ago, 10 years on, we need something uh, even more urgently than we did back then, so it's going to be good. And things have certainly changed in 10 years. I mean, the legal developments and the sort of social and cultural changes and attitudes around animals in Canada, I would say, are vastly different than they were 10 years ago. So I really think it's time to revisit those issues on a national stage. Definitely, definitely. And we are planning on doing that at this conference. We have a stellar lineup, and I thought we would just talk a little bit about 
who we've got coming to speak, some of the uh, keynote and feature and exciting aspects of the conference. So why don't we start with our keynote uh, conference opening speaker? Yeah, absolutely. We're very privileged to be able to open the, the conference with a keynote address by Professor Peter Singer, um, a, um, a moral philosopher who some of you will know, and author of Animal Liberation back in the 1970s. Uh, Professor Singer is hailed as uh, by some as the father of the mod modern animal rights movement. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. He's going to open our conference at a session that's uh, open to the public at the uh, Halifax Public Library on the Friday, and um, we're pretty excited about that. Uh, we've also got another public session on the Saturday afternoon. And that means you don't have to pay to attend. If you're in the Halifax area, you're welcome just to show up. We'll have a registration page up for it at some point, but it's open to all. Yeah, and that panel is going to look at uh, the intersectional future of animal law and animal rights. The idea there being that uh, animal law is just uh, one piece or one uh, social justice movement. And uh, we're really of the view that in order to advance social justice causes, we really need to work together with others who are doing important work. So we're hoping to hear from people, or we will be hearing from people on that panel about the intersections between animal law and uh, gender issues and uh, issues of race and indigeneity and uh, disability and about how all of those things overlap and about how we can um, learn from each other in order to really um, move forward on uh, any of these issues. Definitely. And we should point out as well, I guess I should have said this at the top, but the theme of the conference is learning from the past and looking to the future. So obviously we have a lot to learn from somebody like Peter Singer, who's been there since the very beginning of, of the modern movement. And now we're contemplating future directions and how we can best work together to advance this uh, area even beyond what it's done so far. We also have another uh, plenary discussion panel that I think will be of interest to a lot of people. And we're very grateful that they've agreed to join us for this event. But we have two judges, two appellate court judges, Chief Justice Catherine Fraser of the Alberta Court of Appeal and Justice Lois Hoyig, am I pronouncing that right? I believe so, of the Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal. They've both authored significant animal law decisions. Justice Fraser authored the Lucy the Elephant Descent in the case of Reese and Edmonton, and uh, Justice Hoyig authored a dissent in the uh, pet custody case that Jody mentioned a little bit uh, a little while ago on, on in this interview um, out of Newfoundland and Labrador. So we are very keen to have their valuable perspective being heard by our attendees as well. And apart from that, we've got other panels on, oh, let me just look, look at this list. So some critical analysis of animal law issues, uh, prosecution, whether it's a useful tool of social change or whether it's more properly characterized as a state tool to oppress animal advocates. Uh, there's going to be a cool panel about effective legal advocacy inside and outside the courtroom. That's going to feature actually some... Uh, good friends of mine, but uh, James Silver and Gary Grill, they were better known as the pig trial lawyers in the case of Anita Krines. Uh, we've got the executive director of the Non-Human Rights Project on there as well, Kevin Schneider, and Jessica Scott-Reed, one of Canada's most well-known animal um, welfare advocates and writers. 
yeah, I mean, the list just goes on. We've got all kinds of interesting panels and interesting people lined up. We'll have another uh, a session on enforcement um, in light of the uh, Bogart's decision on the SPCA in Ontario, sort of rethinking um, the animal uh, welfare enforcement models in Ontario and throughout the country. We'll have people, uh, real experts, talking about uh, animals used in research um, and uh, how we might move toward ending animal experimentation in Canada. Um, we've got uh, sort of alternative approaches to animal law and animal rights questions um, and, uh, and a panel on uh, law reform and the idea that it's really time for the law to catch up with our evolving social and cultural attitudes towards animals. Yeah, there, there is just really so much in here. We've got a lot of international content, too. So some of the leading animal protection lawyers internationally will be joining us from Harvard, from countries in Europe, from New Zealand. Uh, it really is going to be a, an exciting conference. The focus is on Canadian law, but we want to inform ourselves with international perspectives. So uh, the agenda looks amazing. You can check it out at canadiananimallawconference.ca slash agenda. If you are interested in attending, I would urge you to sign up soon because we are half sold out already, only a few months away. And the tickets uh, go up in price on August 1st. So if you register in July, you'll get the early bird rate for this event and save a few dollars and we'll be really pleased to see you there. So, uh, yeah, check out the website, canadiananimallawconference.ca. Jody, appreciate that you could join us and talk I'm about this. thrilled to be here and really excited for the conference. It's going to be good. It's going to be fantastic. All right, we are back, and now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros, Camille. Heroes and Zeros. We've got uh, a nice little slate of heroes and zeros today. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about uh, hero. You want to throw it out, Camille? You why don't you go for our hero today? All right. So you've probably heard us talk about the case of Justice the Horse on this podcast before. A case filed by our friends at the Animal Legal Defense Fund in the states. They um, are seeking, uh, you know, essentially this this horse named Justice who was seriously abused by his owner, who was convicted of criminal neglect. Uh, for the suffering that he endured, they're seeking to have him declared a, a victim of crime such that he can sue his abuser in court. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's a, it's the type of litigation that I think is one of those things that can incrementally help move um, the way in which the legal system understands what animals actually are forward. And I think these types of uh, challenges can be immensely positive. They're not too far reaching. They ask a court to consider things in a serious way. And um, they allow a court to really think about animals, which courts don't get the chance to do very often. So I'm really excited about this case uh, involving justice the horse in Oregon. But our hero is not necessarily um, the Animal Legal Defense Fund who is bringing the uh, lawsuit, because I think we've recognized them for that before, Camille, haven't we? I think they have received the Hero Award for this case in the past. But yes, this I, time, I, I our Hero so. Award is going out to some, some law professors who are contributing to the case in the form of an amicus brief for Justice the Horse. And an amicus brief, it's a U.S. term more so than Canadian, but it's essentially um, a, a factum, as we would call it in Canada, some argument submitted to the court uh, 
to show the court that there is support among law professors, animal law professors in particular, for what the ALDF is trying to do. So they, I believe, go over some of the philosophical arguments and the Mm. legal arguments from their perspective in favor of why this is a smart, good, incremental, useful move for animals and for justice in this case. Yeah, and I've had a look at it. It it unfortunately uh, reached my desk just as I was heading on to holiday. So unfortunately, I didn't get to delve into it as deeply as I would have liked. But I was, it it was, it's it's always good, first of all, to see law professors weighing in. And I I think as much as anything else, Camille, I mean, the fact that I'm discussing the fact that there are that many law professors doing animal law work to actually advance an amicus brief of this kind is is pretty amazing in itself. um, Because I believe 15, 20 years ago, that just would not have been possible. Uh, but but it, but it's really great that they're able to sort of cover some philosophical terrain and sort of raise interesting issues um, in a way that uh, the court might not have otherwise considered. And I think uh, the fact that they're willing to do this on their own time and put this amicus brief together in an effort really ostensibly to help move animal law issues forward is something certainly uh, worthy of uh, hero benediction on the Paw and Order podcast. Absolutely. And we should give special um, special kudos to our friend Angela Fernandez, professor of law at University of Toronto, who's been on this podcast before discussing her work. Uh, Angela was one of the main authors of this amicus brief, and I believe it's the first one she's ever done because this isn't as much of a thing in Canada and has been instrumental in getting other people to sign on to it. So huge kudos to Angela and thanks for your work, Angela. Thank you, Angela. For every hero, there is a zero, and this 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 could be the last time we ever mention this type of zero, certainly from this particular location, Camille, because I don't think this type of thing is ever going to happen again. It's one of those it's one of those phase out issues I was talking about that's going to be gone in my lifetime. We are talking about Kalesh drivers, this one in Montreal. That's right. So uh, actually quite an outspoken Montreal Kalesh owner uh, who owns Lucky Luke's stables, which which runs these horse carriages. Uh, He was found guilty of making his horse work in extreme heat. So pulling a Kalesh, a horse carriage for tourists or whoever wants to take a ride when it was 29 degrees outside. And apparently the this this man, Luc Desperrois, did not do enough to get his streets off the horse on July 15th, 2018, when it was this hot. So municipal regulations. I think you mean horse off the street, Camille, but yes. What did I say? You said streets off. You said to get his streets off the horse. Oh, whoops. Yeah. Go, Hopefully go back, everyone understood what I Go back and check the tape. Yes, his horse off the streets. Yeah. So horses are supposed to get off the streets when the temperature reaches 28 degrees. And he did not do so. Apparently, he tried reaching the driver by phone around noon that day. And uh, the driver didn't pick up. An inspector then intercepted the Kalesh and uh, charged him. And he's now been fined $500 for this incident. So what's cool about this is that, I shouldn't say cool, but what's noteworthy about this is that this man, Luc de Perrois, has actually been one of the spokespeople for the Kalesh industry and one of the advocates who is fighting to keep it strong. Uh, Montreal has now banned Kaleshes. That ban comes into force at the end of this year. And uh, Mr. de Perrois lost not only that fight against the ban, but he lost his court case. Don't you love how his defense, Camille, again, you're going to hate that I do this, but I'm going all the way back to the beginning. Don't you love how his defense was, I tried to reach the Kalesh driver 
and I couldn't do so. Yeah. So therefore, I should be excused from my criminal conduct. It's not criminal, but you get the idea. From my wrongful conduct because I, I couldn't reach the Kalesh driver. So guess Guess who got to bear the risk of your failing to provide adequate precautions when the day gets hot? Because you know, Camille, in summer, you never know if the day is going to get hot. I mean, it's just, it's again, it's completely ludicrous. And, and this is the argument actually being made in the court. Well, I tried my best. I'm like, you didn't try at all. Like, you didn't do anything. Again, if you're going to have a system of due diligence where you're actually, you know, trying to comply with the law, like, how about you set up some procedures? You don't rely on last-minute phone calls when the, when, the, when the thermometer ticks over 28. Not something we have to worry about uh, in future, obviously, given the removal of kaleshes from Montreal streets. But again, something to think about just for the slip-shod way in which people trade animal interests and are willing to do the bare minimum in an attempt to avoid penalty by the law. So a well-earned zero. Well, that brings us to the end of our international version of uh, Paw and Order, which was uh, episode 37. I'm pleased to say that, uh, well, we won't be in the same place, but at least we'll be in the same country the next time we reunite uh, to do this wonderful show together. Yes, yes, we will. So, um, until then, Camille, it's been a pleasure talking to you, even over the interwebs. It has been. It has been, Peter. Enjoy the rest of your time, and we'll be chatting with all of you soon. Look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of Paw and Order. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order.